Amen. Amen. Good morning, family. Good morning, Mr. Sweet day, huh? And go Bills, too. The day our Lord has made. And I'm thankful he made this day because it belongs to him and we belong to him and he's made us part of it. Amen? Amen. This date, 45 years ago, I met my wife. Yay! Our brother Mike introduced us. And as I shared with you before, she only had one contact lens at the time, so that, that's the only reason that she had any interest in me. But, but let me tell you how things have progressed. Now she doesn't even wear contact lenses. What's that say to you? <laughs> Actually, it means her eyesight has improved. God's good. I mean, she doesn't need lenses anymore, so <laughs> praise the Lord. Praise God. Hey, family, we're in Acts chapter 11. And this morning we're going to be studying just two verses, verses 19 and 20. The title of today's message is Some of Them. You might say, well, that's kind of an odd title. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I certainly would agree with that. But it points to a distinction between some group of people and some others. So what then is the distinction and how did it affect the early church? But what we're going to find, too, is it's also a challenge for each of us. The question is, will you and I have a desire to have a distinction like those we're going to be studying today, like some of them? And will you be as some of them? I want to read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter to give us a feel for what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, and then focus in on verses 19 and 20. So let's read verses 19 to the end of the chapter. Now when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come into Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord, then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which is in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as, as, far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad, and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man, and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people were added unto the Lord." Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now these verses that we just read in Acts chapter 11, they give us a foundation for the rest of the book of Acts. 
In it, we have a record of how God takes this Gentile city, city of Antioch, and makes it the center of missions and the center of the Great Commission in the then known world. Whereas, and we know this as we've studied the book of Acts, that Jerusalem was previously em emphasized, and now the attention, the shift focused to Antioch, which would become the center of the early church and the work of the Holy Spirit in reaching the lost. So we need to understand what takes place here in these verses. And the context is given to us in verse 19. All of this takes us back to chapter 8 and the martyrdom of Stephen. Again, verse 19 says, And now they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. So following the, the, the martyrdom of Stephen, persecution, it ramped up, and it reared its ugly head in the likes of a man named Saul of Tarsus, who would certainly become Paul, but he was a Pharisee, and he had a mission, and his mission was to eradicate Christians. He hated Christians, and he hated Christ. This persecution caused the Christians to spread out, spread throughout the region of the Roman Empire, and many of them went to Phoenicia, which is Lebanon, Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and the city that's mentioned here, the city of Antioch. Now, one important thing to understand, and you've seen this, I'm sure, to scatter Christians means this, to spread the gospel. Doesn't it? Persecution doesn't stop Christianity. It causes it to move and move and spread and scatter new seeds, seeds of truth, seeds of the gospel. And as the gospel is spread, verse 19 tells us that they only preached the gospel to the Jews, as was common. And we studied this as we, as we looked at chapter 10. And we studied the account of Peter and Cornelius which was unusual for the time. The gospel had never been to the Gentiles, and Cornelius and his household were Gentiles. But we're going to see a distinction in just a moment. Now, about Antioch. The city of Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and it's in Syria. Antioch was a very wealthy city. And with wealth, and the church at Corinth, or the city of Corinth, experienced the same thing. With wealth comes a great deal of wickedness. With wealth comes a great deal of immorality, idolatry, occult practices, prostitution. I mean, in Antioch, they had it all going. But, but God, isn't God good? But God stepped in, and he began to do a work. And not only did he establish a church in Antioch, he made it a critical city in the early church. In fact, all of Paul the Apostle's missionary journeys originated in Antioch. And in the verses we read, 19 through 30, we see that the Holy Spirit gave life to the message of grace and forgiveness to the Christians that were scattered there, and a great many were saved. But I want to zero in on verse 20 in particular. Verse 20, and some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
Praise God that some, that some took the Great Commission seriously and they preached to the Gentiles also, called Grecians here, also called, they're called Hellenists, while others preached, as verse 19 said, they only preached to the Jews. And we can't miss this. They did something that had never been done before in human history. This is the first time that the gospel was deliberately preached to Gentiles. Some of them said there's others out there that need to hear the gospel. We, we need to do what God has asked us to do. We've been instructed by Jesus, according to Mark 16, 15, and he said unto them, Jesus said this, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't say just go preach to the Jews. No, to every creature. But you might be thinking, well, didn't we just study how Peter preached to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and his household? Well, yes, we did. But in this case, the, Cornelius, he took the initiative as the Holy Spirit of God ministered to him and then ministered to Peter, and God brought them two together. But here's a small group of Christians that one day they understood their responsibility in the early church. And that is to go share with the Gentiles. Go share, as God has asked us to do, and, and see what happens, see what God is going to do. You see, it wasn't a majority that went and preached. It was just some of them. You know, family, we need this. We need this in the church today. And the question I have is, are you of some of them? Are you a part of the some of them that brings the gospel? You see, it needs to go forth in order to bear fruit, fruit of salvation. When some share the gospel, what we find is it's an opportunity to get personal with another person, to begin to establish a relationship with them that leads to a relationship with God and continues through discipleship. Most people come to Christ, and I don't know what the percentage is, but I would suggest that the majority of people here in this room that have come to Christ, you've come by personal witness when some of them or someone shares personally with you. Maybe some of you came to salvation in a, in a large group setting, in an amphitheater or some kind of crusade or something. And that's wonderful. God uses those. But I would suggest that most of us here, you've come to Christ because someone reached out to you with the love of Jesus and shared the gospel. So, Will you, will we be part of the group that's called some of them? Will you take opportunities that the Holy Spirit gives you to bring the gospel and establish a relationship that leads to a greater relationship, not only with that person, but that they would have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do your part in the Great Commission? And I know sometimes it's not that easy because we get in our own way, don't we? Sometimes we overthink it. Rather than just listening for the voice of the Holy Spirit, we listen to our own voice, our own fears. We become self-conscious. 
Has anybody ever gone through that, or am I the only one here? Yeah. Been so self-conscious, or, or maybe worried about what others might think. What? What if I share this with them? What are they going to think of me? Doesn't matter. Or maybe fearful, afraid to open up this thing called our mouth as the Spirit prompts us and bring a word from God that could affect them eternally. Well, you might say, who am I? Who am I? God, it's, it's just me. But are you going to be part of the group called some of them? Now, when, when we look at the Bible, when we read the Bible, what we find in both the Old Testament and the New Testaments, we see small groups, some they do mighty things for the Lord. Think about David. He had a band of mighty men. 30. 30 men in total, and they defeated a group of 800. Why? God was with them. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8 says, These be the names of the mighty men whom David had, the Tachamite that sat in the seat Chief among the captains, the same was Adino the Esnite. He lifted up his spear against 800 whom he slew at one time. That's just one instance. Well, think about the threats of the giant Philistine Goliath. How he stood before the armies of Israel, threatened them. And what did they do? <gasps> We're afraid. They cowered under the leadership and kingship of Saul. And honestly, it seems though they were perfectly fine letting Goliath make threats on behalf of the Philistines. But there was one, a young man named David. And David would have none of it. 1 Samuel 17, 26, And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth the Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David knew whose side God was on. If God be for you, who can be against you? So David, he stepped up and God stood with him. I think also of Philip, who we've studied in the book of Acts. Philip sent out as one, sent to Samaria, sent out of Samaria, excuse me, to Gaza, which is desert. God didn't say, Philip, gather up a thousand men and go out in the desert. No, no, God said, Philip, go to the desert, which is Gaza. And he didn't even know what he was going for. But what did he do? He went as the Spirit of God led him. And God connected him to a man that's called the Ethiopian eunuch, coming away from Jerusalem, unsatisfied. He, he went to celebrate one of the major feasts, and there he is, he's left unfulfilled. But God connected Philip with this Ethiopian, and this Ethiopian, as you know, he came to Christ. Philip, you could call, yes, like these here in Acts, some of them, one of them. And this Ethiopian, he did something too. Well, he went back to Ethiopia, and he shared the gospel of grace, and many got saved. He brought the gospel to this country. These aren't huge evangelical events, are they? No, no, these are individuals that had the courage 
to stand up for what's right and, and in Philip's case, to bring the gospel to him who in turn handed it off to the Ethiopian and brought it to his home country. Fruit was multiplied. Why? Well, because there were some of them that stepped it up. I can't help but think of a man named Gideon. A man named Gideon. Well, when we open up the Judges chapter 6, which I'm going to ask you to do, what you're going to find is Gideon was afraid. He was hiding from the Midianites, the enemy, and he had a, a self-proclaimed inadequacy. Maybe some of you do. Judges chapter 6, look at verse 12. Let's back up to verse 11. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which is an Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash the Abizarite, and his son Gideon thrashed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. I love that. God calls him a mighty man of valor. In valor, that word means strength or influence. I'm sure Gideon's thinking, well, I think you got the wrong guy. Strength? Influence? Not this guy. But isn't it so true of all of us? If Christ is not only with us but in us, then then we too, as men and women of God, we are mighty men and women of valor, men and women of strength and influence. Why? Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8.11 says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit, that dwelleth in you. That's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that we have. That is power. So here's this man, this, this man Gideon. He's fearful, hiding from the enemy, but the Lord saw what Gideon would become and he would begin to work in Gideon's heart. And when the Lord looked at Gideon, he, he looked at him as, as the finished work. As he looks at you is the finished work. He looked at Gideon as the finished work and also that he would see him as equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, that's us. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works. You see, God knew Gideon. He called Gideon. And he t intended to use Gideon in a great way. You know, think about yourself. As with Gideon, the Lord knows you too. He knows you far more than you even know yourself. Hebrews 4.13 and there is no, cre excuse me, no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him, to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 5, 
O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassed my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, Thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid Thine hand upon me. You see, God knows all about you. He knows everything about you. And He understands everything about you. And sometimes we think, well, you know, nobody understands me. You know, God does. God does, doesn't he? Aren't you thankful he understands you? Even when nobody else understands you, you can go to God and say, God, you, you understand all of my ways. And you know best how to minister to me. You, you know what's necessary to take place in this heart. So I give it to you. And you know, if you're like most people, you look at your life and often measured in failures. You often measure your life in mistakes, don't you? And in problems. But let me say this. Your mistakes do not define you. They don't define you. You belong to Jesus. He defines you. It's his son, his daughter, his child, his beloved. Sometimes when you look in the mirror, you see a person that fails to live up even to your own expectations, right? Much less God's. Sometimes you think, well, I let God down. I got a newsflash for you. You can't let God down. He already knows you. He knows what you're going to do. You can't disappoint him. He already knows. What can I do? Bring your failures to him. Say, God, minister to me. Make your, your strength replace my weakness with your strength. In fact, the Bible talks about that. We're going to touch on it a little bit later. Perhaps you have a feeling of coming up short. You ever feel that way? Oh, I just fall short all the time. You know, but that's not what God sees. As he saw with Gideon, a man of valor, a woman of valor, a man or woman of influence, a man or woman of strength. That's what God sees because that's the work he's doing in you. Think about Jesse. When Jesse looked at his son David, what did he see? Well, he saw a young boy. He's out, he's out there taking care of the sheep. In fact, he smells like sheep. He's not, in, he's not even worthy to attend this, this family meeting with the prophet Samuel. Everybody was there except David. And when God saw David, what did he see? He saw a king. He saw a king. 1 Samuel 16, verses 11 and 12 says, And Samuel said unto Jesse, are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one the one that Samuel anointed, God anointed to anoint Samuel, 
to anoint David on the spot. David, his own family, he didn't see it, did he? Or they didn't see it in David? No. He's just out in the field. But God saw it. And God ordained him to be king. When Gideon's family saw him, what did they see? They saw this weak man, this fearful man. When Gideon looked at himself, verse 15, he calls himself this, I'm the least in my father's house. But when the Lord, when the Lord looked at Gideon, you know what he saw. He saw a mighty man of valor. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God sees the finished work. So what we need to do is to, to take our lives with all of our weaknesses, and I'm sure we have a ton of them, all of our fears, and I'm sure we have some, weaknesses and fears just like Gideon had, and place them in the hands of the Lord. Lord, these are yours. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Amen. So, if you have weakness, don't hide it from God. You can't anyhow. Give it to him. He said, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And you see, the Lord is able to take us just as we are and transform us into what he would have us to be. Think of Saul of Tarsus. Saul, a murderer, a hater of Christ, a hater of Christians, a Pharisee, proud, a blasphemer. He became Paul the Apostle. (laughs) Don't you love that? And God says, grab a pen quickly. The Holy Spirit's going to speak to you. And he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I think of Simon Peter, a fisherman turned fearful apostle whom God called a rock. David we spoke of. And of course, Gideon, this mighty man of valor. These are just, these are all just some of them. Just some of them. And you see, you're no different. Because God is in a transformation business. Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God said, I'm going to take care of you. I want to renew you. I want to transform you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. He said, And behold, all things have become new. And might I suggest this? As God works in us, as he transforms us, as he sees us as the finished work, he doesn't look at you, he doesn't look at any of us as failures, but what? As works in progress. He knows your weaknesses, he knows your frailties, he takes a life and changes it one step at a time for his glory and his plan for you is purposeful. He's not into wasting time, his own or anybody else's. So we looked at the call of Gideon. Let's look at his response. Verse 13, And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, 
If the Lord be with us, why then has all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up, to, up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewithal shall I save Israel? Or wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. You see, when the Lord called Gideon, what I see here is Gideon was amazed. He's amazed at what he heard. It's as if he can't believe the Lord is speaking to him. You know, I think back, and I remember feeling the same way when the Lord called me into the ministry. Here? <laughs> yeah, you better believe it. Unbelief? Yeah. God, I don't see how you're going to do this, that, and this. And I'm so thankful that I didn't get in the Lord's way. I still do, however. But God's working in me as well. And you know, when God called Gideon, maybe he turned around thinking, God, you must be talking to somebody else. But once he realized that God was speaking to him, he began to question God's presence. In verse 13, it says, And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if, if the Lord be with us, then why is all this befallen us? God, if you're really with us, then why are we going through all of this trouble, all this turmoil? Why are we in captivity with no seemingly way out? Well, don't we hear questions like that fairly regularly from those that don't know the Lord? If your God is so great, oh boy, whenever you hear that, right? You know, get ready. <laughs> if your God is so great, why is there all the suffering? If your God is so great, why is there tornadoes in Alabama and lives are being lost? If your God is so great, why are 25 million people in California under flood watch? If your God is so great, why, why is there wars? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why, why, why? That's the cry of the doubtful man that doesn't know Jesus. Gideon was no different. You see, Gideon ultimately responded in trust. So, so don't give up on those in your life that ask that kind of question. And don't give up on yourself in your doubts and in your inadequacies. You don't pray for yourself. Some people say, I can't pray for myself, that's selfish. Well, you better pray for yourself. If Jesus is good enough to pray for you, you better pray for you too. Pray for yourself, pray for your strength, and then pray for others and point them to Jesus. And in doing so, what do you become? As some of them. Verse 13, Gideon also questions God's ability and performance. Where be all his miracles? God, where's the miracles which everybody else saw? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. It had been about 250 years since God delivered his people from Egypt and parted the Red Sea. And Gideon's thinking about that. He says, well, here we sit. We're forsaken by you. We're in the hands of the Midianites. And notice he blames God 
the Lord delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Well, and it's true that God did deliver them into the hands of the Midianites, but what Gideon failed to understand is that God did that in order that his people would turn from sin. They would repent and turn to God. In fact, if you read through the book of Judges, what you're going to find is this cycle of sin repeatedly. The nation sins. God judges. The people repent. They're restored to God. They get comfortable in their own ways. They sin again. They reject God. They cry out to God. God extends mercy. God extends grace. God extends forgiveness as they've repented. They're restored to God. They get comfortable once again, and they sin. I mean, it's on and on and on and on and on. That's called the cycle of sin. But there's always consequences to sin. But you know, God has his purposes and his ways even through those consequences, doesn't he? He tries to get our attention. He wants us to turn to him. He's not trying to crush us. He's trying to help us. Well, the Lord looked upon Gideon after Gideon questioned God's presence he questioned God's performance, and now he questions God's understanding. Verses 14 and 15, once again, the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have, I not, have not I sent thee? And he said to him, O oh, my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. God heard Gideon's questions. And he said, go save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And he said, Gideon, haven't I sent you? But Gideon still didn't get it. How shall I save Israel? I can't be a deliverer. My father's house is poor. I'm the least in my father's house. And by the way, being least in my father's house that is poor, who's going to listen to me? Who's going to follow me? Who's going to respect me? And couldn't that be us? Couldn't that stand in the way of us being as some of them? Well, Gideon's father was an idolater. And, and maybe Gideon was an outcast from the family because he refused to worship the false gods. That's a tough place to be. Isolated from family because of your faith, because you, you, you reject going the way of those that don't know the Lord... And oftentimes they look at it as rejecting them, and that's really not the case, is it? It might feel that way to them, but you're really embracing the goodness of the Lord and walking with Him. Maybe you've experienced this with your families. You've become an outcast when you came to Jesus because, well, you know what, you don't fit in here anymore. You developed a trust relationship with Jesus Christ. And the things you used to do with family, you don't do it anymore. Your language has changed. Praise God, my language has changed. Our behaviors change. Why? Because Jesus changed you. Amen. And those around you just don't or didn't understand at the time. But family, by the grace of God, don't be discouraged. You stay close to Jesus. He's with you. He walks with you through these things. In fact, he was rejected by his own family too. You're in good company. And not only that, Jesus warned about it. He said it would happen in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36. He said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. 
I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall they be of his own household. Well, Jesus isn't saying, well, I'm going to create a division just to create division. No, no, he's saying there's going to be a division because you are following me and others aren't going to quite embrace what you've embraced or who you've embraced. So he gives us that warning. Well, in spite of the challenges from the family that Gideon faced, he was still called by God. God didn't give up. He still called him, same with you. And, and you cannot give up. And God has called you to do something, to share with somebody perhaps, to be of the sum. If he's called you, entrust it to Jesus. Entrust it to him. Gideon, we know, was, was fearful. And you know, it's not an unfamiliar pattern. When we're called by God, others don't get it. I remember when I was saved, I shared with a family member that God called me. He called me to something different. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. God doesn't call you. Well, he did. And he's trying to call you too. The way people respond doesn't change God's calling. Gideon, you, me, we're in good company with others like the sum of them. You're in good company. When Moses was called by God in a burning bush, he made excuses. Who am I? And we've said that, I'm sure, in our hearts. God, who am I? He said, who am I? And who shall I tell them that sent me? He said, I'm slow of speech. I, 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 you can't do it. I can't do it, God. I can't do it. God said, you know what? I'll put the words in your mouth. Amen. I'll put the words in your mouth. Gideon and Moses, they came up with excuses why they would not do what the Lord said they could do. Because they both felt a sense of inadequacy. Both thought it over in their heads. We can do the same. The real problem with us, with Moses, and with Gideon is we focus on what we are rather than who God is. Certainly without the Lord, we're weak and frail. But you know what? And this is so beautiful. God never sends us to a place of his absence. Exodus 33 Verse 14, and he said, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. And as we just read in Judges chapter 6, verse 14, the Lord reassured Gideon. He said, Gideon, have I not sent thee? And you see, family, we need to learn to be God conscious while we are most often self-conscious, aren't we? The longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize, Lord, I need you. I need you. And you know, and, and we can, after we've been walking with the Lord for a, while, we, for a while, we can become self-confident. And that's a bad place to be. 
Because our dependence always, always, always must be on the Lord. Jesus said, for without me, you can do nothing. So if we come to a place where we understand that he is able, even though I'm not, then, then, then I can be used of the Lord. God, you're able. I'm not. I need you. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. It's all to be the glory of God, isn't it? God, why did you choose us to bring him glory, to bring him praise? And people can look and say, how in the world that happened? But God, but God but God. God confidence. That's why it says in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Trust in who? Trust in the Lord. It doesn't say trust in yourself. It doesn't say trust in the government. It doesn't say trust in other people. It says trust in the Lord. And when we do, what happens? We get whose understanding? We get God's. We get God's understanding. We get God's perspective. And Gideon began to get God's perspective, even though he continued to resist. Verse 15, he said, I can't afford to do the Lord's work. He said, My family's poor. Can't do your work, Lord. Well, we can, we, can we afford not to do the Lord's work when he has called every single one of us to be as those some of them? That's his plan. But the real question facing Gideon is not can you? Why? Because God provides. The real question is will you? Many people ask the question or make the statement, I, I can't. I've said that, believe me. Oh God, I can't do that. But really what I was saying is I won't. But God has a way of turning our won'ts into yeses, doesn't he? Praise God for that. You know, he specializes in turning doubters into doers. Maybe you're a doubter, and now you're a doer of the word. Praise God for that. He specializes in choosing the unlikely in man's eyes to accomplish his work. There's other examples in the scriptures. He used Abraham. You might be thinking, well, Abraham, he's, a, he's the, the father of faith. He wasn't always that way. He was a pagan. A pagan from the Ur of the Chaldees as the one from whom all the nations of the earth ultimately would be blessed. What can't God do? He used a man named Jacob. How's Jacob known? A liar, a conniver, and he became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
God used Joseph, a slave, to save the then known world. God used Moses, a shepherd and a murderer, to deliver his people. He used a man named Jephthah, who was the son of a prostitute. He used Matthew, a despised tax collector, to write about Jesus, the king of the Jews. He used Saul of Tarsus, a murderer of Christians, a hater of Jews, Jesus, to write two-thirds of the New Testament. Israel, in, in Gideon's time, in the time of the judges, they, they cried out to God for a deliverer. God's answer was a reluctant judge named Gideon. Gideon didn't see it, but God saw it. And God used all these people and so many others that seemed unlikely in man's eyes to be his chosen servants. He took the some of them and made them into chosen service to do his, servants to do his bidding. And, and serve they did and they do. And this is a challenge for each of us. We need to be out and about doing our Father's business. Gideon, a, an unlikely candidate in man's eyes, an unlikely candidate in God's eyes, or excuse me, in his own eyes, excuse me, but the best candidate for the job in God's eyes. Isn't that glorious? You may think you're nothing, others might think you're nothing, but you know what? God sees you differently. He sees you as the sum of them with a message of hope that others need to hear. So if you're a child of God, then you absolutely have what it takes to be, as it tells us in Acts here, some of them. As some of them. What did they do? Well, they stood against the tide. There were those that only, only testified to the Jews. And these guys were pricked in the heart by the Spirit of God. And he says, listen, you got to get that word out. And did they ever. Here we are today. Praise God for that. Well, maybe you're a bit fearful, right? Or maybe you just feel, God, I just feel inadequate. I feel weak. Well, a sense of inadequacy is okay. Why? Because you don't depend on yourself. You depend on the God who sent you. The God whose strength is perfected in your weakness. Will you ask him? God, you know who I am. You know everything about me. Would you take your strength as I give you my weakness, would you perfect your strength in me? Will you ask God to give you courage at those times when he's asked you to testify of him and take away the fear and place all your confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you ask God to give you a heart in order to be of the group called some of them, willing to step up and bring the good news to another. But you know, you can't be one of the some of them group without being first one of them. You have to be one of them. In other words, you must be a child of God, empowered by God's Holy Spirit to do his work. So that leads to an all-important question. 
Do you belong to Jesus? Do you belong to Jesus? Are you one of His? And if you have any doubt in your heart, any doubt whatsoever, you know what? God wants to erase that doubt from you. Or maybe you don't have any doubt. You say, I don't belong to Jesus. Well, He wants to change that too. He says, you come to me. All you are laboring and heavy laden, and I'm going to give you rest. His invitation stands. He's standing at, at the door of your heart knocking. He's, will you let me in? And I remember years ago, family, when, when I was faced with that same, that same situation, he's knocking on a door of my heart. Will you, will you let me come in? Let me come in. Let me come in. And it's like, oh, I'm afraid. What was I afraid of? I didn't know what God's plan was. And he never reveals his entire plan in one fell swoop, does he? No, he gives us a little bit of time so we can, we can trust in him. We can build our faith as we study the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And as he begins to plant those seeds of encouragement and truth in a person's heart, that's, okay, God, I know that you're for me. You have no harm in your mind for me. You, you know me. You love me in spite of me. Yes, I'm a sinner, and I need you. I need you. I need you. Maybe some of you are at that place today. You recognize, I, I need a Savior. What a glorious place to be, isn't it? Because once we recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior, guess who's there to meet with you? The Savior. <laughs> Amen. He's wonderful. So if anyone would like to pray with me and invite Jesus into your heart, what a glorious day this is going to be. You'll be rejoicing with the angels of heaven over one sinner that repents. See, heaven cheers when a sinner comes to God and receives forgiveness. Because heaven knows what's best, doesn't he? Doesn't, don't they? Yes. Father, I, I come to you today, and yes, I, I am a sinner, and I really need you. I, I need you, Lord. I'm asking you to take my life and change me from the inside out. And I know that can only take place if I forsake my sin and bring it before you and ask you to forgive me, please. When you laid your life down on the cross and you bled and died, you did it for me that I could live. And I just want to live every moment of my life for you. So Lord, please cleanse me. Purify me. Make me fit for the master's use. I want to be used. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to turn from my old ways. Maybe there's some tough areas in my life, Lord, where I need to walk away from, but I know you can help me. So I ask you to please, please help me. I trust you, I love you, and I thank you. As you enter into my life and into my heart right now, Lord, I praise you. And Lord, I thank you for the empty tomb that has given me the promise of eternal life and has given me the eternal purpose, and that is to be your child, to be used by you. I love you, Lord, and I praise you, and I pray that you would help me to tell others about you. I want to be as the sum of them. Thank you for loving me and saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.
I'd like to invite our worship team up now as we share the Lord's table together. What a wonderful time that God has given us to, to remember all that Christ has done because it's glorious. When we think of how <clears throat> we've, in the past, maybe even presently, walk in our own ways, and communion is a reminder for us how God has given us a new life, and his new life has come to us through Jesus Christ, through forgiveness of sin. We've been restored with God. And I'm so thankful that we have been given this ordinance called communion, where we take the bread and we say, God, this represents your body that was beaten and broken. And I stand here unscathed. We have the juice in the cup that represents his poured out blood. And we can say, Lord, I'm so grateful for your blood that's cleansed me from all of my sin. And I'm grateful it didn't have to be my blood shed. But you poured out your blood that I might be saved. How good God is. How totally unfair he is. His life for mine. He's much more than fair. And he is gracious. And he is good. And he loves you. So let's express our love to him as we worship him, as we share his table together. And when you're ready, when your heart is prepared and ready, partake, and then we'll finish up. <clears throat>